Alain Mazzulli is a supernaturalist researcher who lectures on the subjects of UFOs and the Nephilim, ancient prophetic texts, and presents his research at conferences and churches and media appearances and interviews on numerous national and international radio and television programs. He's written 13 books and he has produced 27 film documentaries dealing with these paranormal and UFO issues. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Well, welcome, uh, LA, to Exopolitics Today. Thank you for having me back on. My pleasure. Well, it is great to have you back, and I know you've been uh, very busy and you are a prolific kind of producer of these television uh, film documentaries. So, yeah, we're going to talk about a couple of those today. So I wanted to start off with the uh, this out-of-place artifacts. I mean, that's the eighth in a series on the Trail of the Nephilim, that you've called it out-of-place artifacts. So yeah, why don't you just explain what you mean by that? Well, when when we travel the world, um, we find things sometimes and find artifacts. And you, you kind of look at the artifact and you go, and that doesn't really belong here. Something, Something's amiss. I know, you know, but the, 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 the guy, the docent, is, is mouthing off the party line, but I'm not buying it for a second. And... Um, that's really what the film is about. One of the most extraordinary ones, in my opinion, is the Vatican Obelisk. I mean, it's in plain sight. It's right there. And I'll never forget when I was in Vatican Square, and, and I'm walking up to this thing, and I'm kind of going like, eh, this, something's wrong here. It just, this, something's fishy. I don't know what it is. So I go back online. I do a deep dive on it. And lo and behold, um, this thing is thousands of years old. Caesar Augustus brought it over from Heliopolis. There's not a hieroglyphic on it. Nobody knows where it came from, but as, as legend goes, it's uh, Heliopolis in Egypt, and Caesar Augustus carts this thing. And this thing's, you know, 83 feet tall, 320 tons. This is not, yeah, there it is. This is not, this, you know, a nice little cute rock that somebody decides to, you know, bring over. It's just, it's just incredible. And there's there's a lot wrong with it. it it's one thing to try to cut something 4,000 years ago. And mainstream archaeologists will tell us you can get a carpet saw, you can put sand in the groove, and you can cut granite with it. And, and I'm, you're not going to get an argument from me. And I get that. How do you do this? How, how, do, how, do, you, how do you make this? And, and then why? You know, why do you need a 320-ton monument? And it was carted in the Rome uh, by Caesar Augustus. Caligula had it moved to what became a circus. Then the Vatican took over that area. And uh, roughly in 1586, Pope Sixtus V, yeah, the fifth, I think, um, decides to move the thing about 300 yards because it's in the way. So he begins to move it. It's... It's 900 men, and it's 300 horses. And depending on what, which account you want to read, it's it's three months, it's six months, it's nine months, it's it's ropes, it's bullies. It's a huge production. 
to move this thing. And then what's really telling is the Pope comes out and does a rite of exorcism around it. Why does he do that? Why does the Pope feel like he needs to do a rite of exorcism? Well, in my wheelhouse, what I call this, and I call it in the film, this is Nephilim architecture, fallen angel technology. What I mean by that, these are the watchers. So when I say angel, just move that to the side because immediately people have these preconceived notions. These are interdimensional, extra-dimensional entities which are messing with the genome, and they bring knowledge with them. They bring lots of knowledge with them. They do all sorts of stuff. They can manipulate space, time, matter, and energy just in the same way we find in ufology and modernity, same thing. Are they the same guys? In my opinion, they are, but I digress. So going back to this thing, you know, an obelisk changes as you go up. Every every centimeter you go up, the everything's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So, you know, theoretically, you can take a chalk line and go dink and then dink on the other side, and and, and you can you can kind of do that. But, but, you know, are we looking at pounding a granite slab with a bunch of rocks and then polishing it? I mean, we're really supposed to believe that? Copper saws? I mean, how does this work? And with, with so much of the archaeologists, they'll show one guy with a copper saw on a granite block, small granite block, and they go, see, we can cut the granite. Okay, I get that. But show me how you make an obelisk like this that is absolutely pristine. And I'm it, when you're there, uh, and I spent like you know a couple of hours just walking around the thing, looking at it. Uh, it's it's mind-boggling. And again, in 1586, if this is so easy to move and do, why is it, why does it take you know three months or six months to move it a couple hundred yards? <laughs> it's just yeah. Well, my my question with this uh, is that uh, you know the obelisk is there. I mean, obviously, it has certain occult significance, and yeah, what 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 is underneath it? I mean, because I, I know the Vatican has a lot of these secret tunnels. I mean, and I mean there is a, uh, you, I'm sure you you know of him, um, the Vatican exorcist who. Uh, wrote about these uh, satanic rituals happening at the Vatican. Is this obelisk used by these kind of Satanists that are operating or controlling the Vatican in these underground ceremonies? Is that what the obelisk's true purpose is or one of its purposes? Well, it's interesting because Pope Sixtus did a rite of exorcism on it. So on some level, he had to know what he was dealing with. Whether he knew about the Nephilim, of course, is conjecture. Uh, I've never been able to read if he has any memoirs. Um, and, you know, you're talking about the novel Windswept House, which was incredible. Uh, that's the late Father Martin. Uh, and I've read the novel and I've, I've listened to his research on Coast to Coast when he was on before he died. And there was a ritual that was done in St. John's Cathedral uh, years ago, allegedly. Now, we don't know. I mean, we just, it, it, with a lot of this stuff, it, and I keep it on the back burner because Unless I can really prove it in some way, it's, it's conjecture, it's hearsay. And as a, as a journalist, as a researcher, I, I can say, well, I, I feel safe in going, this is what the conspiracy theorists tell us, but, you know, can, can we prove it or not? <laughs> They're the balloons. Yay! And, and you know, I can't. So I, I really don't go with it. I'm very familiar with one script house. And, and, and the work of, of Martin, um, to say I'm a student of him would be 
that that's a fair statement. I do find it interesting. Um, there are there are scandals, but there are scandals all through. You know, any any human endeavor, no matter what it is, <laughs> religious, non-religious, there's scandals. It's like the human soul seems to have this little little fault with which leans towards depravity on some level. So you're, you're gonna, it's a mixed bag. You got a lot of good in humanity, but you got a lot of nonsense going on too. So um, are there satanic rituals going? Uh, I've talked to allegedly SRA victims satanic ritual abuse victims who talk about this, talk about the tunnels, uh, talk about the abuse, uh, talk about the child sacrifice. Can I prove that? No, I can't. Whistleblowers, alleged whistleblowers, have come forward. But we have to take this extremely carefully. I mean, you're talking about uh, accusations like this are incredibly damning to some people. What if they're not doing it? You know, what if it's what if it's a canard? The whole thing's a ruse, which I don't believe either. So I keep stuff like this on the back burner. I mean, I just do. I just I just keep it on the back burner um, until I have more information. So I know about it. Uh, I've never really written about it because I don't have enough information. Um, again, I've read Martin's stuff, and I and there are Vatican um, exorcists. That are that are there. The demonic realm is very real, all too very real. Is it a mixed bag? In my opinion, it is a mixed bag on some level. Are there pedophile priests? There's no doubt about that. There's absolutely no doubt. Um, priests have been defrocked and removed, and the whole deal, or moved to another parish. So we know we know the reality of some of that. People have gone missing. It's and 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 what people need to understand. And I, I'm going to go way out on a limb here. This is not my version of Christianity, just so you know. This is the workings and the trappings of men. Most of what they, much of what they believe, not most, but much of what they believe is not sourced in the biblical narrative. They are amillennialists, which means that they don't believe in a literal millennial kingdom. Uh, they're not looking for the return of Yeshua, they're not, and yet we know that that's written um, in documents that are 2,000 years old. I mean, we know that. So th there's a game plan. It, it's a it's a man-made construct, and, and I don't want to start bagging on Catholics here, but I guess I already am, so I'll, I'll continue a little bit. The whole construct of the Catholic Mass is nowhere found in the biblical narrative. It's just not there. The idea of transubstantiation, which Catholics will defend to the nines, nowhere can you find that. It says, do this in remembrance of me. It's not, you know, when Jesus says, <laughs> I mean, it's a three-hour conversation. I don't know if you guys want to go here or not. Let me wrap it up by saying this. It's a Passover meal, first of all, where they get this from. So it's a Jewish Passover meal. It's a Seder. And so when Jesus breaks the bread, right? He's he's breaking the bread. That's the afikomen. And part of the afikomen is hidden away to the end of, of the Seder meal. If you've never gone to a Seder meal, it's an eye-opener. It's mind-boggling. So Jesus isn't saying, you know, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And he's certainly not saying he's, it, it's all symbolic at that point in the context of a Jewish Seder meal. It has nothing to do, with all due respects to Catholic, 
believe what you want to believe, but it has nothing to do with a priest and a host standing up, ringing a bell, and then going, you know, the, the transubstantiation. It's just, this is a man-made construct, and that's what I take umbrage with. Well, what I'd kind of like, like to just explore with you here, uh, because I know you talk about the Nephilim, you know, you talk about the fallen angels. I, I've done a lot of research, and there are others that talk about these uh, reptilian, these Draco reptilian beings who are worshipped by the elite, mm -hmm. and that a lot of these uh, SRA rituals are done to to call on these reptilians who are, you know, I mean, you, I'm sure you're aware of David Icke and, and how sure. these beings are like fourth, fifth dimensional and come into our frequency. So, you know, are these satanic ritual abuses, uh, are these really just a way of calling in these uh, reptilian draconian beings, which others might call fallen angels or Nephilim? Yeah, the short answer to that is yes, but it's very complex. And it, it's just just to say yes is sort of disingenuous on my part because it's a very complex phenomenon. And, and for instance, when was the last time anybody sat down with a reptilian and asked them 20 questions on camera? I mean, it's just not going to happen. So, you know, we see very – we see little snippets. We get, we get snippets from people. I mean, um, we published a book by Karen Wilkinson uh, – stolen seed, evil harvest. And Karen was taken by them from six years old. She had three children by them. They came and took the child. Uh, she knows about reptilians. I mean, she's she's seen them. Her handler on the ship was human-looking, but when he decloaked, he was not human. And when you say that to people, it's like, ooh, you know, that's like, it's very much woo-woo. But we've had too many people come forward that say the same thing. And again, you know, when was the last time anyone sat down with a mantis or a, a tall white? I mean, pick pick your and and able to ask any questions. I mean, there are there are rumors with, with the Eisenhower and the Holloman base, which I believe happened. There are rumors that we've heard people have come people have come up to me at conferences and they'll go. Can I speak to you privately? And I'll go, sure. And they'll look at me, and I'm a student of body language, and they will tell me right off, I'm working in an underground base next to aliens. I can't say anything to anybody, nor can you, but it's real, and I'm doing it, and I have no place to go. But I respect your work, and that's what I'm telling you. Then they walk backwards into the crowd, never see them again. So what do you do with that? You know what? I mean, the guy's a whistleblower. He's terrified. I mean, he's absolutely terrified. So, I mean, it's a very complex, hidden agenda, and a lot of it's speculation. But what bothers me about it is that it's done in darkness, that you are, you are taken against your will, you're raped, essentially, you're abused. And, 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 and I get it. There's this dual... I mean, you can talk to uh, Preston Dennett's Dolly, and you'll get a completely different narrative about this than you will our Karen Wilkinson. So, but they're both on board the ship. Karen, like Dolly, learned to fly the ship by she was taught by her handler. That's what she calls him. She was taught by her handler how to fly the ship, just like Dolly was in Preston Dennett's book. So we had two witnesses talking about the same thing, and we know that. <laughs> Thank you for the balloons. And we know that 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 Dolly 
um, has a completely different take than Karen does. We know that. I mean, I would love to get the two of them together. It'd be a fascinating conversation. Karen believes, like I do, that there's a real nefarious agenda here. Uh, Dr. David Jacobs, his book, Walking Amongst Us, believe that there's a nefarious agenda here. Um, Dr. Roger Lear, when we took out the implant and uh, what happened with that. I mean, we're the only one of the only teams on the planet that's still in existence that took out an implant. And that was high strangeness in the operating room that day. High strangeness, no doubt about it. So it, it's a very complex narrative. So, L.A., I know you've uh, visited Peru and you've seen some of the UPARTS there. So you know, how important is Peru in terms of this whole UPARTS phenomenon? Well, there there are so much that's there that is just out, completely out of place. Um, I mean, I'll just I'll just start with something like when you go to Oyotentambo and something cataclysmic has happened and it's thrown whatever this building was. You know, people archaeologists always go the Temple of the Sun. Wait, you don't know what they called it. Stop making names. Why can't you just say, well, it might have been called this, but we really don't know. So in my opinion, that's an intellectually that's very disingenuous. You don't know what they, they, they call this thing. You don't even know who built it. You'll tell us the Inca built it, but the Inca had nothing to do with this. You get down below, and there's this very large stone, which um, is, is andesite, which is really, really hard. And you can't cut andesite with a copper chisel. I mean, you, you, just, you just can't do it. I'm going to see if I can find one of the... Um, one of the shots here, because it's just, I mean, it's just, it's just mind-boggling. I mean, it really is. And, and, and you look at it and you kind of go, you know, some, something else is going on here because you, you just can't, you can't make a, um, a, a structure like this. I mean, you, you, if, if you can't cut it, then you can't cut it. And so, so how is this done? And, and, and more, more importantly, you know, who made it and, and why it seems to be, so I'm desperately trying to find this stupid thing. It's 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 whatever this thing is. Um, yeah, here we go. So whatever it is, it was it was done with absolute precision, and 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 no one knows why. I mean, no one knows well, well why why did they do this? What's what's the point of making this this object? And and no one has an answer for it that I'm aware of. I mean, it's just it's absolutely mind-boggling. I mean, we really don't know. I mean, what I what what boggles my mind, and I'm actually working on a theory on this. Wherever I've been, it's the same story endlessly repeated. Well, whoever these people were, they came in, they built something, they built a, a structure, and they, they built in, in ways that make no sense at all because you know how do you how do you cut andesite stone um, in, in the Bronze Age? I mean, how do you do that when you got a copper chisel? You can't. We actually we actually demonstrated in the film out of place artifacts. So so how is that done? If you can't do it, then you can't do it. So who's the pseudo archaeologist creating this whole narrative? And we don't even know whether it's true. Look to your point, Michael. They may have been some worshippers. Okay, they may have been that. But there's something else going on. Um, all these sites, whether it's whether it's Tiwanaku, whether it's Puma Punku, 
Oyotte and Tambo, you know, all down in South America. But then you get the same thing up here, or you go to the Standing Stones in Karnak, or you go to Gilga Rafaim or Menga in Spain, or, or any place. You hear this, you hear the same thing. Well, something happened, and these people just disappeared into the indigenous population due to climate change. The, the Mexican government doesn't know who built Tiwanaku. They don't know. I'm not Tiwanaku, Teotihuacan. They don't know who built Teotihuacan. They call them the Teotihuacanos. That's what they call them. But they don't know that the people who built this, what they call themselves, the people in Corral, Peru, the oldest city in America, 5,000 years old, they have no idea what these people call themselves. And there's this area there where they won't let you go. At least I've been there, I don't know, four or five times. They never allow you to go up to this one area. It looks just like, the, it, to me, and there's aerial photographs of it by a drone that was illegally thrown over it, but it looks like, there are the balloons again. Wow, so bizarre. <laughs> Guys, I'm just talking. My hands are, I'll keep my hands up the rest of the time. I have no idea. Somebody's method was it, that's for sure. But when you go to Corral, um, and you see this this structure, it looks like a kiva from Chaco Canyon, except it's not a kiva from Chaco Canyon, but it looks just like it's underground, and that's what the kivas are. And you hear the same story. Well, these people built these sites, and they left because of climate change, and they, they assimilated into the indigenous population. You don't know that. They don't know where these people – look, in, in the Hopo culture, Hopo was a farmer. So they don't know, modern-day archaeologists have no idea of what the so-called Hopewell, who built all these amazing earthworks in Ohio, no idea what, what they actually call themselves. And, and, and the, the, the party line is, well, they blended into the indigenous population. Well, if that's true, where are Native Americans' oral tradition stating that, you know, a thousand years ago, 1,500 years ago, we had an event, um, a, a, a star, something, a supernova, whatever, I don't know. And these people from an unknown land wanted to join our clan. It's not there in the oral tradition. It's not that I'm aware of. And there, there's, no, there's no buffalo skin or oral tradition or anything that would show us that the Hopewell, which, you know, who knows, never saying it was the Shawnee. The, Shawn the ancestors of the Shawnee. But we've got the same chief, Chief Wallace, about 15 years ago in an article that she wrote stating that, no, the Shawnee did not build these artifacts. They were here when we got here. Then she's flip-flopped. Now she's saying our ancestors were more than geniuses. Um, we've got information, which we will release probably February of next year. We've already, we're in post-production. But we've got three films before we get to that. And what we discovered was an incredible link uh, to the old world, which is not a coincidence. I'll just leave it at that. And, and we see this, this connectivity, so-called so grid of the gods type of deal, which manifests um, everywhere. Uh, I don't know who's doing the balloons, but... Well, I Oh yeah, we 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 have been officially hacked. So, um, well, me, one of the well, one yeah. of the kind of artifacts that uh, you you uh, have uh, talked about in in this uh, uh, 
film uh, Upats uh, on the trial yeah. of the Nephilim is this, uh, you call it the Nephilim Lance. Oh, so, yeah. So what is that? I will show you. Um, this man, Robert Shelley, brought it to us, and we were just blown away by what we were looking at. And when I saw it at first, I said, oh, that's a sword. And immediately, Chief Joseph said, no, it's not a sword. It's a lance. And that's what it looks like. Okay. And it's 28 pounds, which, which ties into the biblical narrative. Ishbi Banab's spear was about 28 pounds, so it's very heavy. The Kandahar giant's lance was about that long. It was about three feet long, and you can skewer three men. The Nephilim, the, the, the uh, Kandahar giant was about 12 to 14 feet tall. Um, I've got multiple witnesses on this now, which is kind of mind-boggling, actually. And um, they've one guy in particular was called after after they killed the first giant to go in and investigate, and that's a whole other story. He told me off the record what happened, um, ex-military guy. But when the giant of Kandahar came out, he was brandishing a very large lance like this. So this is the stuff that makes wonderful bedtime reading. So Shelley gave us the lance, actually gave Chief Joseph the lance, just gave it to him. Um, and are there attachments with the, with this lance? More than likely. More than likely there's stuff on it, possible curses. I mean, you know, this stuff is real. And so um, I said, Chief, we need to do a metallurgy test on it. He said, sure. So we take it, we take a little corner from the hilt, just a little corner, like a small piece, about that big, about the end of my pinky. About, about let me get it in front of the camera here. About, about that big, a very small piece of a lance. We take it to a very high-tech lab um, in, uh, in, in the Midwest, and we, we meet and greet, and we say, hey, we've got this, this artifact. We'd like to know the age, where the copper comes from, blah, blah, blah. The woman is very vivacious, very friendly, very open. Uh, tell us, yeah, we can probably pinpoint where the copper came from, the age of it. We can, we can tell a lot. So we're supposed to have the results in a couple of weeks. Month goes by. Now it's like maybe six weeks. Finally, we arrive at, at the lab. She's there with a PR person. They won't allow us to film. And the woman, the tech, is not um, allowed to talk to us. If we ask a question, it's got to go through her handler. And so we're in a room. And um, really weird, really strange. And the bottom line is she's very coy and very nervous, and everything runs through the handler. And she, her bottom line is, well, this is no different than any copper artifact that you would find in modernity. So as, as things have it, I'm speaking at a conference, and I, I talk about this and how if there are any metallurgists in the audience, we're looking to get another test on this. Lo and behold, Christian Widner comes up to me, top-notch metallurgist. Yeah, there you go. Except they're lances, they're, they're spears. They're not, they're not swords, they're, they're spears. And uh, Christian says, you know, we've got a lab. Uh, let me get a sample, and, and I'll see what we can do. Well, 
uh, in the film, we show that there seems to be a Middle Eastern connection, which is our wheelhouse, because that we believe that the Nephilim came over to the New World about 3,000 years ago, roughly. And we have artifacts that, that seem to prove that. So that's what we think. And this artifact, while the, you know, the isotopic ratio can be found in Michigan, it also can be found in Saudi Arabia. So which is it? You know, which is it? And, and, and we don't know. Well, that, that Middle East connection with the Nephilim is, uh, is fascinating. I mean, yeah. you, you've pointed out that the Nephilim are, are kind of like these giant hybrid offspring of the, you know, the, the, the fallen angels. So, so with this Middle East connection, uh, I, mean, I mean, it's worth kind of like bringing up what's happening right now. I mean, uh, is this conflict between the, the Palestinians and the Israelis, is that just a, a kind of geopolitical event that dates back to the Balfour Declaration uh, you know, at the end of the 18th century, early 1900s? Or is this connected to this kind of ancient battle uh, between the Israelites and the kind of like the the progeny of the the Nephilim, because the, the the Bible talks about or the Old Testament talks about the Israelites being commanded to wipe out the the, the giants or the Nephilim. So yeah, is, is this what the conflict is all about? It, it's 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 not either or. It's both and. Um, they were told to wipe out the giants in Gaza, and they never did that. They never did that. So it's come back to bite them. Uh, and remember, when you say, well, isn't that genocide? These, the Nephilim are entities that are soulless. They have no soul, in my opinion. They are soulless. They are in a fixed state. They are the progeny of the Watchers and the human women of Earth, creating a hybrid being. Now, what does that sound like to you? What, what is going on in the breeding program right now? When women are taken, they're impregnated, they, and then the third month of pregnancy, they're re-abducted, and the baby is taken from them. We get into this in our, in our cattle mutilation film. I believe that, that that entity is then put into an artificial womb. The blood of a cow can be used in a human transfusion. So these entities are creating artificial wombs to grow the hybrids in. And for some of you out there who have never traveled in this, that sounds incredibly bizarre. And I agree, it is. But these, these, when you take a child from a mother's womb or an entity that's three months old, it can't live outside that that womb for too long. It just can't. You've got to put it into some sort of an artificial womb. And as we show in the film, artificial wombs are being constructed. This is the new the new deal. They're already talking about it. And cow's blood can be used in human transfusion. So it's not only that. The Israelites were commanded thousands of years ago to wipe the Nephilim out in Gaza, and they failed to do so. There's also this whole thing, an idea of the faulty two-state solution, where Israel gives land, <laughs> wow, land for peace, which they did in Gaza. And according to Dave Gordon, uh, IDF soldier, when they gave the land for peace, they, as they're coming out of Gaza, the mortifier started. So they give up the land, there is no peace. What, what most people don't understand is the history here, that this entire region was controlled by the Ottoman Turks 
in 19, before 1917. And the Ottoman Empire stretched from Turkey all the way down into the Middle East, all the way through Northern Africa. So you get Algiers and, and Egypt and everything in Northern Africa. It's a strip. It's all controlled by the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire. So the Ottomans, the Ottoman Empire, the Turks side with Germany. Germany loses the war. So the Brits and the French come in to the Turkish Empire, to the Ottoman Empire, which was there about 400 years. And they create, they create out of thin air, the modern states of Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and Palestine, out of thin air. There's, the, the boundaries make no sense. They're not taking in consideration Sunni, Shia. They, they appoint three Hashemite kings one is in Lebanon, one is in Syria, the other is in Jordan. The Hashemites have their, uh, traced their descendancy from the prophet Muhammad. So the only Hashemite king left is the king of Jordan, who is a Hashemite king. That's it. Iraq and Syria, the Hashemite kings were deposed by the Ba'ath Party in both countries. So if the, if the so-called Jews have no right to the land. I used to have, before the house fire here, which burned us out completely, and we've rebuilt, by the way, so it's all good. But I had a pamphlet, a recreation of one, from 1919, right in that window of time, from the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. The Grand Mufti is like the head honcho, the big cheese of Jerusalem, who's obviously a Muslim, who in this, in this paper states unequivocally that the Temple Mount, the remains of the Temple Mount, is a Jewish edifice. It has nothing to do at all with, with Islam. Nothing, nothing at all. Islam later ado adopted it and, and made this whole thing about Muhammad uh, ascending into heaven on, on the Temple Mount. But the Temple Mount, uh, according to the Grand Mayfday of Jerusalem, was built and created. That's where the Temple of Solomon stood. So it's the and you'll get the argument that these are the Khazarians, and again, people need to do their homework. There's always been a Jewish presence throughout the Middle East after diaspora. Diaspora happened, Titus and the crew come down in AD 70, but then there's the Bar Kochba revolution revolt, which happens in AD 125. When the Romans come in this time, they're not screwing around. So, if there's an edict, no Jew is allowed in Jerusalem at all till basically the year 300, when Constantine goes in and then takes this whole thing and, you know, is this what happened here? Is this what happened here? So the whole thing just goes completely off the rails at that point. So if the Jews have no right to the land, then, then no one else does either. Let's all give it back to the Ottoman Turks. We'll displace everybody to Canada, and everybody will just live happily ever after. But that's not what's going to happen. Well, uh, you know, you said a few kind of really intriguing things there. Um, you know, firstly, as as far as the Nephilim being soulless beings, yeah. uh, there's another possibility here that uh, the Nephilim are, are merely avatar bodies, yeah. that uh, these are bodies that extraterrestrials can use at different times. So you can have, like Yang, you mentioned that the, that the Nephilim in the Gaza Strip were never killed off or removed, that they, there could be Nephilim there, Kind of like giants underneath somewhere, and that uh, these are I don't know worship protected or whatever, 
and uh, at some point uh, these giants will will kind of resuscitate themselves so so you know uh, you kind of already answered that question you said that this present day conflict we're seeing in Israel and and Palestine that this is just a repetition of something that goes back hundreds you know, many centuries even thousands of years well that is true there's also um the prophetic implication is that we see in the guidebook of a supernatural, i.e. the Bible, the biblical prophetic narrative. Psalm 83 talks very specifically about what we're looking at now, very, very specifically, naming, naming it, it, you know, in, in the end times. and, and it just It's very, very specific. It's not like a fuzzy Nostradamus quatrain. It's extremely specific. And Israel has been regathered back into its land, which is what happened in 1948, and they expand their boundaries. Um, Israel last week saber-rattled to the Iranians and said, if Hezbollah decides to attack us, and, and or you attack, we'll destroy Damascus. That's Isaiah 17. Isaiah is an ancient prophet. He wrote about that. In Isaiah 17, chapter 17, he states Damascus is, is no more. Damascus is a ruinous heap. That's never happened. In the history of the world, Damascus is the oldest city on the planet. It's over 5,000 years old, continuously inhabited, inhabited city, very, very old. Now, this, this, the area around Damascus has it's basically been reduced to rubble. There's nothing there. I've seen drone footage of it. I mean, it's just to no man's land. But Damascus proper is still intact. It still is the capital of Syria. And they are, they are playing with fire um, Hezbollah and and Iran's proxy in Syria doing the same thing. They're lobbing missiles over, mortar fire over, attack drones over. At some point, the IDF may open up a two-front war. Right now, we're looking at Gaza, and they're defending the northern border. But if they open up a two-front war, are we looking at Psalm 83? And the, the short answer to that is very possible, which has never been fulfilled. Are we looking at the destruction of, of Isaiah, which is, um, or destruction of Damascus, which is Isaiah 17. That's never happened. So for those of us who travel in the biblical prophetic narrative, I, for one, I'm certainly one of them, uh, I'm, I'm every day I, I go to um, rapture, like, like a rapture, like a R-A-P-T-O-R, rapture news from Israel. It's very, very thorough, no BS, no hype. It's from a military perspective and tells exactly where the skirmishes were, what happened, who did what, who flew what, um, and where it might be going. Raptor News is definitely worth going to. But all this leads up to and can lead up to another prophetic text, which is called the Ezekiel 38-39 text. And then you get the wild cards of Russia and Turkey and Iran. Those three nations are listed in the Ezekiel 38, 39 prophecy, verbatim. So you've got, remember, this thing's written like a couple thousand years ago. So, you know, and, and it, this is letter, this is end time stuff. There's no doubt about it. There's absolutely no doubt. And it can't happen until Israel is regathered back into the homeland, which is 1948. And so I, I wrote about this in the Cosmic Chess Match. Out of the ashes of the Holocaust, you get the rise of this tiny little nation state Israel. You get the Balfour Declaration. You get the UN voting for Israel by one vote. Russia voted for them. It's just incredible. And so the Jews 
you know, get their homeland. You also see the absolute virulent rise of anti-Semitism um, and false, false flags, false news reporting, like with the hospital. Um, what happened, the attack came from Hamas on the last day of Yom Kippur, the highest Jewish holiday of the year, that in, on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. That in itself was extremely important. It's very, very deliberate. And babies were decapitated. I mean, the atrocities that happened, and once Netanyahu got wind of that, that's when he declared war. So it's, a, it's um, like you say, it's an ancient hatred that won't go away. And for... Um, you know, in in a way, what you've described is is kind of like what many others believe is happening right now. That it's an ancient conflict, the two sides, you know, the, the Israelis and the Palestinians. Uh, it just is just is the latest kind of like uh, stage or the the latest kind of like event of something that's been playing out for a long time. And the kind of and that you've mentioned biblical prophecy, the uh, book of Revelations, which this seems to be fulfilling that. So some people say that what we're seeing now is exactly what was described in the book of uh, Revelations, that is prophecy being manifested. But there's another possibility here, and I want you to explore that, that this conflict is being staged by a third force. Uh, you can call them the Cabal, the Illuminati, and they're using the book of Revelations as a template to stage or manipulate global events to, to make things happen or unfold in a way that is consistent with the book of Revelations. And, and you know, the evidence for that is uh, what Seymour Hirsch, I'm sure you're aware of him, the uh, famous investigative re uh, reporter, he described how two out of the three Israeli army battalions that were guarding the Gaza border, two of those three were moved out only days before to the West Bank on some contrived pretext. So, you know, that is, to my mind, evidence that this attack was was allowed to happen that there's a third force allowing the attack to happen because they they want to create you know this book of revelations gog versus magog end times third world war and you know and that's the stuff of a conspiracy theory and i get that and i'm familiar with that because i heard it too and i follow all this stuff we're not in the the what we're in right now is psalm 83 isaiah 17 which leads up to ezekiel 38 we're not in the book of Revelation, not even close to it, not even close to it yet. So all this stuff has to transpire before we get to the seven years of Jacob's trouble. It's a whole deal. Let me read you something here. Um, uh, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Meshach and Tubal is Turkey. Prophesy against them, saying, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out. And, and it goes on from there. So Magog, according to first century Jewish historian Josephus, the land of Magog was inhabited by the Scythians. The Scythians are the Stans, Kazakhstan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, uh, Rosh, the remote north. It, it Magog is Russia, at least part of Russia. Meshek and Tubal is Turkey. I mean, it's the, Persia is the land of modern-day Iran. Kush is actually modern-day Ethiopia. 
and, and also the land south of Egypt. Put is also Libya. Gomer is part of Turkey. So what, what's bizarre is the specificity in which what was written. So it, it, in other words, it's, if that's true, that there's a third party that's manipulating events to create this, it's still prophecy being fulfilled, which begs the question, why do they want this to happen? You know, I mean, why, why would you do this to, for, for what end, to what means? I mean, even if you could manipulate it to the point where, okay, we're going to manipulate this so prophecy will be fulfilled, why would you do this, pray tell? You know, to create a one-world government? Well, we know that that's going to happen anyway. There will be a one-world government, a one-world religious system. I mean, that was prophesied thousands right. of years ago. Well, well, you know, I think the answer to that question is that um, these beings that are manipulating these these conflicts, I mean, they're looking for something uh, called louche or this kind of energy that right. comes right. out of, you know, the, the hatred, the animosity the that's generated yeah. through these yeah. Through these wars, and you know, and and what you know, what I find interesting is that both on the Palestinian side and on the Israeli side, you know, both of those have uh, peacemakers. But what's happened is that the peacemakers have been marginalised; they've been removed into the you know, out of the picture. And what you have is, you know, the extremists on both sides, because Netanyahu is by no means a kind of peacemaker. Uh, or moderate. I mean, he's like he represents that extreme side of like, well, you know, let's solve this conflict with the Palestinians using our overwhelming mil military force. And then you have on the on this other side, you have the Hamas, who are extremists. I mean, they are no doubt, you know, yeah. and they're extremists, and they 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 absolutely believe that th this conflict can be resolved only through military force. And ag again, it's like, well, that's nonsense. This conflict has to be resolved through peaceful dialogue. But the, the peacemakers from both sides have been excluded, marginalized, and you have this war. And I think this is what you know this third party wants. They want that loose energy because someone is getting it or, or the training it. They, they feed off of fear. There's no doubt about this. But in the Israeli government, it's not like we have a commander in chief. Netanyahu's just one of three guys. And you know, so Netanyahu wants to go in, his one of his counterparts does not want to go in. So they're waiting for the third guy to make up his mind to figure out who he's going to side on. Are, are we going to go, look, w when you've got Hezbollah constantly and, and, and Gaza um, firing rockets during the harvest season, they'll send drones over and drop incendiary devices. I mean, this just goes on and on. And I've been to Israel, so I know what it's like. Um, the hatred, the vitriol is very, very deep. Um, and it's very, very real. And I have no solution to it. I will agree with you that there are entities that are pushing this thing and and fueling it on some level. There's no no doubt in my mind. There is an unseen force that is that is pushing it. The question is why now? And so as as a student of prophecy, I look at this um, and I wait. All of this leads up to the return of the king. And I'm not talking the Lord of the Rings here, but all this leads up to the return of the king, where everything changes. The world as we know it changes. But before that, you go through the time of Jacob's trouble, the seven-year period of tribulation. That is the book of Revelation. And it's unlike any other time in history, so much so that unless those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. So, so Michael, it's a really complex, really complex mix 
it's it's extremely complex and and there's no simple 15 minute answer there just isn't i mean i've been a student of this for 43 years and the deeper i go the more i realize how much i don't know and and more than likely will never know so you know we watch i hold on to things very loosely very loosely except for the fundamentals those things okay we have a, this is the base we work everything from the base but other than that it's like not you know this whole thing could just dissipate we've seen that happen before this whole you know cooler heads could prevail everybody could go let's go back in our corners you know winter's coming let's just chill but the atrocities on both sides are off the hook and they are yeah yeah, yeah, I agree, definitely. That. So I just want to kind of shift gears now and go to your documentary, the this, the cattle mutilations, the calling card of darkness. So that's the sixth in the series. So I mean, cattle mutilations are they still happening? And you know, just oh, describe absolutely. what what's going on right now. Yeah, in Texas, just this year, there were a series of cattle mutilations which made national news. It, it was picked up in all national media, um, which I found extremely interesting. Um, our, we did a deep dive with Chuck Zukowski, uh, who's Mr. Cattle Mutilation himself. Uh, he took us to uh, several people, uh, Rancher Miller, who had, I believe, 16 cows mutilated in like a 20-year period um, on his property. And, you know, I'm not sure how much time we have left, but to cut to the chase, I asked Miller on camera, on a level 1 to 10, what's, what's your fear level here? He goes... About an eight. I think he's being um, trying to tamp it down a little bit. Uh, I think it's a 10 that I'm putting words in his mouth. But, you know, an eight's pretty much up there. And he's gotten used to it on some level. Here's the bottom line. Miller goes out and sees a cow mutilated. It's done with surgical precision. There's no blood left in the animal at all. No blood in the animal at all. Certain parts of the animal have been excised, cut out with surgical precision. Eyes, udders, sex organs, anuses, hearts, um, brains have been extracted without an entry hole. How is that possible? Eyes, tongues, it just, it's all over the map. And the animal has been placed down in the field. Uh, coyotes won't get near it, and coyotes will eat anything. Scavengers won't get near it. There are no footprints around the animal, not a drop of blood. So the animal is taken. The blood is drained from them first. Then the organs and different parts are, are carved out with a surgical precision. Then the animal is dropped back in the field. Rancher Miller goes out. He sees it. He's freaked out. He brings his wife out. She's fearful. They bring the kids out. They're really scared. What, who would do such a thing? They bring the veterinarian out. He's never seen anything like it. So now he's scared. Sheriff, law enforcement comes out. Maybe it's a satanic cult. Yeah, but there's no footprints around here. So how was it done? We don't know. So then they finally bring a local reporter out. He takes pictures of it and writes up a, a story with the pictures in the local paper. Fear, 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 rings of fear, rings of fear, just all around everybody and everything. And that is the calling card of darkness. There, in, in fact, in the film, I look right at the camera and I say, there's no happy ending here, folks, because there isn't. There's no, you know, the, there's no benevolent space brothers going, hey, we took your cow because we needed blah, 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 blah. It's, it's deliberate. And when I asked Chuck, 
Chuck Zukowski, at the end of the film, I say, Chuck, you know, do you think this is benevolent or malevolent? Chuck looks right at me and he goes, uh, whoever these, whoever they are, wherever, if I go on an investigation, he's packing a gun. And then, of course, he spills the beans. I wasn't even going to go there with the uh, human mutilation aspect of it, but Chuck does. And he talks about, I know of two such cases, um, one in Pennsylvania. Um, I forget where the other one was. And Chuck's third case was um, uh, up in Canada where uh, a like a Mountie or a police officer, highway patrol guy, there's a car on the side of the road. He goes over, knocks on the windshield. There's a woman slumped over the steering wheel like this. She seems to be dead. He calls their version of the coroner. Coroner comes out. They open up the car door. Upon examination, her innards have been cored out. She's been mutilated just like a cow. So this is really grisly, really dark, dark, dark stuff. And, you know, who would do such a thing? So there's the cattle mutilations, but there's also the very dark side of it, which, of course, is the human mutilation. And I believe that they are taking this genetic material and creating artificial wombs for the hybrids gestation. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, I think uh, William Cooper was one of the first to talk about these agreements that had been reached uh, uh, between the uh, U.S. Well, the, you know, the the Majestic Twelve group and these grey aliens, where the greys would take a, a limited number of humans, abduct them for genetic experiments, and they would also be allowed to take cattle. That they so you have that you have the agreement, and there was also um, an. Uh, Air Force veteran uh, Dan Sherman, who wrote above, uh, above, top above Black, above Top Secret, oh, above Black, yeah. something like that. And uh, he also talked about the agreement. So I think, you know, the, the, who's who's allowing this? Well, yeah, there's an agreement, a secret agreement uh, between elements of the uh, U.S. government and these great extraterrestrials for these uh, abductions to happen and the cattle mutilations to happen. That's my guess. And, and it is mine, too. There seems to be this quid pro quo uh, where we have no say in it at all. But the powers that be, um, we got the ships because of, I believe, Bob Lazar's story that um, they were working on back engineering the propulsion system at S4, which is included in Area 51. And they did this. Uh, where did, where did, this, this, the Book of Enoch says the same thing. But the watchers come down, they give technology, albeit it's primitive technology, to mankind for access to the population. I mean, it's the same stinking thing going on. And this is why there's a prophecy that says it'll be like the days of Noah. Well, what differentiates the days of Noah? The book of Enoch are the watchers coming down, mingling their seed. And that's precisely what we see with the abduction phenomena, the mingling of the seed between the watchers and the human woman, creating a hybrid being, walking amongst us, Dr. John Mack's work, Dr. David Jacobs' work, and others. I mean, there's no Dr. Roger Lear's work, our work. I mean, there's definitely a mingling of the seed. Our, the book that we published from Karen Wilkinson, Stolen Seed, Evil Harvest, I mean, it's it's uh, not for the faint of heart. And she was taken from a very early age, like we're talking six years old and impregnated by them three different times. 
Well, you know, you mentioned the Book of Enoch, and I think right. it's worth it's worth kind of pointing out that there's three kind of books of Enoch that are discussed, and the, and in the I believe it's the Slavonic Book of Enoch, where it discusses that uh, Enoch, when he went up to the heavens and he saw the Ancient of Days and spent time with the, all of the uh, the cherubim and the seraphim and stuff, that he brought back 360 books of knowledge that had to be preserved through the great flood, and so that uh, at the end of the day, those books of knowledge would then be used to kind of like uh, bring the ancient wisdom back to humanity. So, so yeah, on, so I guess it's maybe you want to just clarify or distinguish. On the one hand, there's the the knowledge uh, that the, uh, the that the corrupt ones, you know, you call them the Nephilim, the sons of Belial, used to corrupt humanity, but on the other hand, there's the sacred knowledge that's used to kind of like uh, re rebuild humanity. So yeah, you want to, you know, what makes the difference between those two? This is a really go-to book. It's by Gary Wayne. It's a very thick tome, uh, the Genesis six conspiracy. And, and, and Gary uh, gets into all of us uh, in the pages of the book. Um, it's, it's, I'm doing a deep dive on it and I've got all sorts of, Think notes in the back and things underlined in pages and you know, a lot of research in here. He's actually got a sequel to it. And Gary, Gary appeared on our Armor Trail of a Nephilim series, but it's it's a mix. He's he's an academic, um, and he's he's a top notch researcher. I mean, really, it's it's an amazing book. Out of all the books on. The Watchers and Enoch and and the whole Antediluvian flood. Um, this this is my new go to book because it's it's so in depth. It's a type of book where um, you can get lost in the footnotes, literally lost in the footnotes, and follow his research. So even though I'm reading it one time through, um, and I can call him, pick up the phone and call him. You know, I I've got his number and I do. I call him and say, well, what about this? What about that? So to get into the ancient wisdom, um, he, he addresses that, um, but he calls it spurious wisdom. So he takes a completely different turn than you do. He thinks that, you know, the, the watchers and what, in other words, he thinks some of it's corrupted. What, what some people say Enoch brought back, well, maybe Enoch didn't bring that back. Maybe that's an add-on. That's why I go to the R.H. Charles version of, of Enoch, and then only Enoch won. It seems really clear that there's this quid pro quo going on between the Watchers and the human people, and they're they're trading for access to the population. They're giving technology for the access to the population. For instance, you know, you talk about ancient knowledge. Well, it's one of the Watcher angels, Sariel, gives the course of the moon. That that's ancient wisdom. The course of the moon. No one knew that. And it was just given to mankind. I mean, you go back to the days of Noah, they didn't know it was an 18 and a half year lunar cycle. I mean, this is why when circling all the way back to the 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 um the Hopewell Indians and, and the Newark Earthworks, that site is built on an 18 and a half year lunar cycle. The octagon mound shows the lunar standstill when that moon comes right into the gate. Every 18 and a half years, it happens in 2025 and then goes back up. The lunar standstill sits in the gate, and the octagon encompasses uh, 50 acres of land. 
So the octagon goes into a gate, and then the gate goes into a circle, and the observation platform is in the circle. So you stand in a circle, look through the gate, there's the octagon, and there's the lunar stanza, which comes like this. But the octagon is an unequal octagon, and there are gates within the octagon showing equinoxes and 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 other phases of this 18 and a half year cycle. Well, according to the Book of Enoch, that was just given to mankind. And this is where the whole Shawnee narrative breaks down. If you know about an 18 and a half year lunar cycle, where is it? You know, and how do you build an octagon, an unequal octagon that encompasses 50 acres? How do you check your work? So we brought in a mathematician who teaches math on the collegiate level, the collegiate level. And we have her draw this octagon on a piece of paper. And the, guess what, Michael? The, the paper is only this big, right? Well, she's got a protractor and a ruler, and she's got angles, and she's working advanced geometry. And, she, and she's showing us just how complex this is. And that's on a piece of paper. How do you translate that paper in the 50 acres? How do you check your work? I mean, you know, I mean, it's like the emperor's got new clothes here. Quit telling me that the Hopewell built this when there's absolutely nothing in the archaeological record. There's no, there's no measuring devices. There's no, there's nothing. They, there's no artifact. There's not one artifact that would show how the the Hopewell or who the Shawnee or whoever built this thing. And according to Richard Crowhurst, who I'm sure you know, uh, Richard did a deep dive. I wrote a paper on the octagon mound. He puts it far earlier than what modern-day archaeologists. He says that this thing is about 4,000 years old, and I would concur with him because America Stonehenge, where we've created two films on it, and we might be going back up there because we've discovered some new, new and really interesting dynamics there, which people don't know about either. So, I mean, there's, there's this, all these out-of-place artifacts. There's a hidden history that's been deliberately obfuscated from the peoples of the world. You know, you're told what to, what to say. You're told what to think. You're told when you go to Sacsayhuaman that the Inca were master stone builders. No, they weren't. The Inca built with head-sized boulders and mortar. It's a whole different deal. So stop lying to me. Stop telling me that this is the official narrative and this is what happened when you have no clue how it happened or who built it, that the builders just vanish in the thin air. And we see this over and over and over on a global level. Look at Gobekli Tepe. Why is that site closed down? Why is it buried? Why is it hidden away? Was it deliberately shut down? Look at Corral in Peru, oldest city in America, 5,000 years. Was it shut down? Did, did, did forces go in there, unbeknownst to us, and shut down Corral? Look at Teotihuacan. Why is it abandoned? Why, when you go back and look at pictures before the modern era, is it completely overgrown? They don't even know it's a pyramid, for crying out loud. They don't even know. Why is it America Stonehenge that the sacrificial altar is buried? It's got vines growing on it. They didn't know what it was. Why is there a collapsed chamber? Why is the bell stone buried? you know, in the ground in that collapsed chamber so it can't be seen? Why is the stone, May 1st stone, toppled down at, at America Stonehenge, which is the only stone 
out of all the stones in the circle, which correspond to different geographical locations. Why is that closed down? Why is it that Menga, the largest dolmen area in Spain, we spent an entire day there by ourselves filming, why don't they know the builders? They have no idea who built the site. We hear the story over and repeated no matter where you go. They still don't really know who built Stonehenge. That goes back and forth and this and that. The blue stones, these stones, those stones, you know, and, and it's like the precision there. Stonehenge, England ties directly and exorably back into America's Stonehenge. We demonstrated that. We showed that on Google Earth in our film because when you go from the uh, center of America's Stonehenge out to the summer solstice sunset, and you draw a line on Google Earth, and you continue that line, uh, a person winds up intersecting the two trilithons dead center and at Stonehenge, England. It's not a coincidence. That line goes right through both of the trilithons, so they are angled to receive that line from America's Stonehenge. So how is that done? What you're looking at is spherical trigonometry spherical trigonometry. In other words, you've got to account the curvature of the earth over thousands of miles. I mean, I mean, how is that done? How is that done for crying out loud? So there's, and I say this in my show, there's a hidden history that's been deliberately obfuscated for the rules of the world. Michael, you're looking for the truth. I'm looking for the truth. We all are. We're all trying to figure out where we are, how we fit in, what is this, what is consciousness, how does consciousness integrate with this little three-dimensional biological suit that I find myself in? Who are these entities? What's the agenda? Is there life elsewhere? Or is this whole thing a holographic universe? And these entities are coming in from another dimension. And this is why we grope and we talk and we exchange ideas and we're open-minded and we're trying to figure out how, how do the pieces fit together? And nobody really knows. We've got conjecture. We've got hypothesis we and we and we're testing those hypotheses but that's that's why we're on a trail that's why we're discussing and talking and exchanging ideas and looking into all of this yeah i i agree with that actually i think we are all doing the best we can to fit together some very complex pieces so very I just complex yeah, I just wanted to finish off, and uh, uh, we touched on this in our first interview, and so I just wanted to finish off by revisiting this and maybe having a little more time for you to, uh, you know, do, respond and deal with that. And uh, you know, you've you've mentioned David Jacobs and his work, and he's, you know, his focus has been pretty much on these grey extraterrestrials and the abductions and the genetic experiments. And you know, I agree that that's been happening and that that it does represent a threat. But I, but I know I've gotten to work with a lot of uh, contactees, a lot of people that have had uh, these beautiful, uplifting experiences with these human-looking extraterrestrials that uh, ask for permission. You know, they don't abduct people. They just ask for permission and give them the opportunity to come on their craft. You know, and you go all the way back to people like George Adamski and Orthon. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, you know, what, what's your take on this? Are, are we talking about really... You know, two different types of extraterrestrials, one malevolent, uh, manipulative, and the other very positive and benevolent, kind of like just as we saw in the Book of Enoch, and that's repeating itself right now. I mean, I've, I've had, in 43 years, I've had one angelic encounter. 
Um, it lasted about, um, I don't know. It, the guy, the guy came on a ski lift <laughs> with me, and you know the biblical narrative says that you know, hey, some of you guys have entertained angels unaware. So the story is this: I'll just give you the backstory, and then I'll tie it into Joanna Michelson's book because she studied under um, a, a brujo, bruja. Uh, in Mexico, and and people were healed. But where does the source of the power? Where does it come from? And so she wrote a book about it. So I was in a quandary, and it, we were skiing uh, up in Mammoth Lakes. It was spring conditions, so the conditions were kind of. And, and I and I digress. So my wife Peggy is skiing on one part of the mountain, and I'm going up and down, up and down. It's a weekday. There's nobody there, so I'm just going up to the top, skiing back down skiing right on the lift, waiting for the lift to come around, pick me up, and up I go. I'm usually the only guy in the chairlift the whole morning. All of a sudden, I hear, hey, mind if I join you? I go, and I don't even look. I go, sure, come on up. And this, this guy comes up. He's in a racing ski uniform, so he's really fit. He's got white hair and a white beard. He's, he's really fit, really fit. And the ski has got all these patches from all of the, you know, the skin tight ski racing ski things got passages from all these different ski areas. And he looks at me and he goes, how, this is his opening comment. Um, how many days did you get skiing this year? I go about 14. Oh, I've got 123. We'll kind of look over here. That's every day, essentially 123 days. So he goes, I guess you're still working, huh? I go, yeah, I'm still working. What do you do? Oh, I make documentary films on the Nephilim. I'm thinking to myself, here we go. Now I got to tell this guy who the Nephilim are because he doesn't know. I'm supposed to be on vacation. I don't want to talk about the Nephilim right now, but I will if I have to. He skips over that. He never addresses it. Flag on the play. So I go, he goes, well, have you ever heard of itchy boots like you're wearing your feet? I go, no. Oh, she's got 1.2 million followers. I go, wow, that's way out of my league. That's literally amazing. And um, now the seat, the, the chairlift seats four people. So I'm here and he's here, and these two seats are vacant. So we've got, you know, the, the chair like this, I'm here, and, and the guy's over here. I've never met this guy before. I've never seen him before or since. White hair, white beard, racing ski thing. He reaches over, Michael. And he grabs my shoulder and he touches my shoulder and he goes, you're doing the right thing. How does he know that? And he lets his hand down and he touches it again. You're on the right track. And then he touches it a third time. Keep doing what you're doing. By this time, I'm, I got UFO brain fog. I'm not thinking clearly. I'm going, what is going on? Who is this guy? How can he possibly say anything like this to me. I am lightheaded at this point, and I'm just kind of going, you know, what is happening? So all this takes place within four or five minutes of riding up a chairlift, and he's he's touching me, reaching over to touch me. You don't do that. People don't do that when they've just met you. And, and, and other statements like, you're on the right track, you're doing the right thing, keep doing what you're doing. How could he possibly know that? He doesn't know that. Who is this guy? And I get off the chairlift, and he goes, you know, 
past me, and then down the mountain. I, and he goes, by the way, that's the U.S. ski team here. And he fades, and I never see the guy again the rest of the day. And there's not that many people up there, first of all. I ski straight, and my brain is, like, completely scrambled. I'm kind of going, like, what just happened? And that was the night where we came up with the show Supernatural Confrontations, all because of this one encounter with this guy. Because that that's what I was thinking about. How do we... How do we make this new show? And we named it that night at dinner, Supernatural Confrontations. And I believe um, that that was an angelic encounter. So Joanna Michelson is studying under a bruja, a witch, and she's learning how to heal. And she's watching people get healed. So it's, it's, it's a very complex mixed bag when we, and very sloppy when we deal in anything supernatural, because first of all, it's supernatural. And our laws don't apply. For instance, when Jacobs talks about everybody floating through the window, that's a future physics. He can call it that, and that's what it is. But these entities manipulate space, time, matter, and energy. So just because I appear to be benevolent doesn't necessarily mean, in other words, I throw this back to you. What's the litmus test that we use for this? You know, what what what's the litmus test? What's the protocols that are set in place to even ascertain whether they're benevolent or malevolent? Obviously, if you take a five-year-old boy against his parents' will and you implant them, that's not a good thing. And I, we get that. But then to your point, how is it that some people have these wonderful experiences or they're healed or they're told of a special mission or, you know, whatever. I get that. I get that. But if it's deception, is it, and this is the, I'm playing devil's advocate because I don't have the answer to it, nor does anybody else that I know of. Um, if you're trying to create a deception, you're playing, you know, it's both the same side, but it's bad cop, good cop. That's what you're doing. That's conjecture. Again, and, until we can sit down with a tall white and get the cameras going and ask this guy 20 questions, you know, it's like. Right. Well, you know, that is, uh, you know, that is a, a question that we have is like, you know, until you get these positive human looking extraterrestrials on camera, there's always going to be doubt. But, you know, certainly we've got you know, a long list of people that you know, testify that, yeah, they are positive and benevolent. But then again, as we know that there's also the other side. So, right. yeah, I, but, but I, I agree with you that, you know, we're all seeking the truth. We're all trying our best to put together all the all the pieces to understand it. And I, I think you've done great work in uh, you know, studying you. these archaeological sites. Thank in, you. Appreciate it. Yeah, so I think uh, people would benefit by uh, taking a look at those uh, two films that we just discussed, uh, the... the uh, on the search of the, the, the Nephilim on Uparts and, of course, the uh, cattle mutilations. And so anything else you'd like to say, uh, L.A., before we finish up? No, just, um, you know, uh, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, um, that cool heads would prevail. I mean, who, who wants to see this type of... I know I don't. I don't rejoice in any of this. I find it deeply, deeply troubling. But what was written will come to pass. What was foretold is unfolding right in front of us so very interesting times well thank you la mazuli thank you no more balloons how does that work <laughs>
You have been listening to ExoPolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com. Thank you.